Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Far Stuff. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff, we talk about the end of browsers. The end of browsers? Yes. What does that even mean? You haven't heard? No. You didn't get the memo? Ooh. Are are browsers just going to disappear? I'm afraid so. It was it was really nice while it lasted. I don't know if you remember browsers, but they had these tabs. Ooh. And I would keep like 50 open at any given time. Oh, that sounds like me. Of things that I intended to read. That sounds exactly like me. And then I would eventually resort to tools like Pocket to save those things for later. and Never I, read them? I would never read them. Never. But I add them religiously. I do readability. And someday... And Evernote. Yeah. yeah. And someday when I'm laid up in a hospital room, with, breathing my last breaths, I'm going to totally catch up on all that stuff. See, I, I like to use them when I... I'm on a plane and I'm on yeah. one of those old planes that don't have TV or Wi-Fi or, or anything that can keep me entertained. Sure. Then I read all the things that I couldn't read before. So browsers, they were great. And you could like view source and you could like learn from web pages and it was sort of open and it was like something a bunch of hippies got together and made. And there was a spirit of cooperation and openness and people learning from each other. But it was still pretty restrictive because you had to, with intent, open a browser in order to interact with that information. It wasn't just a natural part of the world around you. No, but we liked it that way. <laughs> little whippersnapper. Um, but yeah, it was uh, browsers. They're great. But th- here's the problem. They're, they're really complex and they're huge and they're full of code to handle edge cases from five and 10 years ago, and they have to support all these versions of HTML, and they're, they're enormous, and they won't run on these devices that we care about, these new Internet of Things devices. They're just too bloated, and they're designed for a world where people sat at a desk and used a computer, a thing that had a special place in your home. They don't have a place in this new world of the Internet of Things. Things just exist ubiquitously and collect information and transmit information and give us exactly what we need when we need it. And that's, that means the end of the poor browser. They're, so they're super complex. They're enormous. Like the, the footprint of browsers is so large that it dwarfs, you know, how large operating systems used to be. It's crazy. And so when you're trying to create a device that is supposed to run on battery for a year, or, or is supposed to be designed to sell for $50, you just can't have one. So when I have to Google a thousand things on my phone and my battery dies in about two and a half hours, you're saying that's a problem. It's a problem if you're trying to make a device that's cheap, that is going to be produced in enormous quantities, that uh, is supposed to last a long time. It's, it's all a problem. And probably a device that has a very specific purpose. That might have been why the antiquated browser was such a beast of a thing, because it was meant to handle so much more information. I, first and of all, I love that you're talking about it in the past tense I am, already. I am. I've done my job. We've 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 moved into the future. They don't browsers exist. are no more. They they barely exist. Yes, well, they're um that's true. And and every I don't know if you remember that there was this thing called a web page, but that was long ago. Now we have web apps 
And there are uh, tons of HTML and CSS and JavaScript. And they create these fully interactive experiences. And now you can have amazing apps like Gmail. And uh, what's another one? <laughs> oh, like, of course, you know, Microsoft's Office Suite. All these things that used to depend on an operating system now can, can use this incredible power in a web browser. So along those lines, it's, it's, it's also the reliance on the cloud, isn't it? That the actual device you'd be using to reach out and grab any of this information or, or pull any of this or interact with any of this doesn't actually need to do any processing at all. It just needs to be able to access this uh, web app. That's a great point. I mean, a lot of a lot of the power of these web apps uh, lies in their uh, backend code that do things for you. That's a great point. So, so the front end can be kind of dumb, which means it can be small, which means it can be efficient. Those are all great things that you just just do not need the bloat of a web browser to solve. And so that's how you'd say things will be evolving from the browser that is large and heavy and clunky and has to understand a wide variety of different types of code to a simple little app that you download and pulls all its computing power from someplace far, far away that you don't have to deal with and doesn't drain your battery and doesn't require a lot from whatever device you're choosing to uh, interact with it. Exactly. I think our web browser has become our OS. The OS almost doesn't matter for a lot of our day, unless you're using something like Adobe's Creative Suite, at which point you're not going through the browser yet, obviously. <laughs> but yes, the browser has become this thing that I think is is no longer useful for most scenarios in a world where you have, one, the Internet of Things, and two, apps. So how practical do you see this actually evolving as as it goes? Like, how how realistic is it that which generation in in this immediate future would know a world without a browser where they would just assume you have to just download something to interact with anything or accomplish anything that it wouldn't just be this one location to a, interact with multiple locations in the interwebs? It's a great question, and I wish I was that smart to know. But it seems like millennials will definitely be using web browser. I think we all will for a long time, but for more and more niche things. You know, today we use a web browser. It's literally launched all the time, right? It's I'm using it all the time. It's an addiction. Uh, it's an addiction, it, too. It's, you know, a world without internet. I just, I, I barely know how to function within it anymore. So the question is, is it the end of the internet? Is it the end of the web? I don't think so, but I think it is the end of the browser. In a way that it's the evolution of the internet. It, it, it really is. Look, this, this is not really a web browser. It's, it's really an HTML and CSS and JavaScript browser. If you look at the APIs that people are providing for apps, for Internet of Things devices, these are all working over HTTP. They're just not sending over so much of the user experience with it. They're sending the critical data. For example, if I have a Fitbit, it's reporting back to the Fitbit service that I've walked X steps. It's a very small, very tiny message being sent over HTTP, which is the same plumbing being used when I log those steps in a web browser. But in a web browser, it would be sending and receiving a thousand times the amount of information, maybe more. So I feel like this actually brings us to an interesting question. If we are moving to a world where it is 
the end of browsers and it's a world where things are connected in devices and and everything is app based uh what what happens to this to the url there's been a, a mad dash to buy up uh internet real estate quote unquote uh urls and now they're starting to open up all these crazy url yeah dot guru and dot whatever i it, it just insanity I wonder if at that point, do the URLs then just start identifying the th various things that exist around us that are smart enough to communicate in that way? Or is this also the end of the URL? Man, that's heavy. I think it is. I think it is. You know, we, we look at movie advertisements. In a lot of cases, instead of sending folks to a URL for the movie, they're uh, using the hashtag for the movie that they're encouraging everyone to use. Use a hashtag to have your conversations and uh, download an app. Every movie, and uh, especially now in the media experience, there's a lot more of the Samsung app that goes along with your TV viewing experience. If you have certain shows that are getting very popular, download the app and that's how you interact with it. So there's no need to go to houseofcardstvshow.com. You just download the app and that's how you buy the stunning dress she's wearing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so many people will just type. I've actually seen people type URLs into Google's search box because they still don't quite get it. They're just not of that generation where they understand that, oh, there's a search box and there's also this thing where you type in a URL. So they'll just use Google to do everything. And Google is kind of smart enough to send them to the right place. They just do it in like a couple more additional clicks. So just like kids today don't know a world without immediate access to a phone at all times. Right. The next few generations will not know what a URL is. I think they'll be like, URLs, was that like a dial tone for the internet? <laughs> like that annoying noise that you had to listen to when, when you were doing the dial up. Yeah. Oh. No, it's. No it's, one will forget that. Yeah, exactly. I think it's very similar. I think the URL is an artifact that probably goes away. I think URLs will be uh, used under the scenes. They're great for what they do, which is uniquely identify a resource or a thing. But as far as a day-to-day -day user experience thing, I think you're right. I think it's dead. And it's interesting, too, because I, I was recently reading an article that was talking about how kids don't know computers at all. They don't understand them. So you mean think they don't know how they work. They don't know how they work well enough to troubleshoot basic concepts yes. that older generations actually know better because we were around when the computers were invented yes. and, and became mainstay. So I wonder if it's going to be the same thing as as we continue this proliferation of the internet of things and this URL and browserless world of the internet, will it now create a larger and larger crevice, a gap between people that know how to fix things and will understand that your Fitbit has its own URL address or your washing machine does versus the people that are just like, oh, I, I clicked, I, I kept clicking on my dishwasher and it just didn't work and I don't understand why. I think you've nailed it. And the analogy that came to mind when you were saying that is cars. So if you look at the 50s, there was this very interesting car culture where every kid that went to high school knew how to like work on his car and knew how to like really max out the power and stuff. And you can kind of see that mirrored in the folks who build their own PCs, myself included. It's like, oh man, I'm going to use this case and oh, this, this power supply kicks butt. It's like so efficient. Go and Raspberry like, Pi. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, Raspberry. 
<laughs> different thing. But yes, that maker community existed for cars once upon a time. And it existed for computers. But if you look at how that went, if you open up the hood of any car today, it's effectively solid state. I mean, there are things that you just cannot get to to yeah. fix. And and I almost actually find that a little depressing because I'm a pretty big car enthusiast. I love the cars. And when we started making that switch from instead of open the hood, plug in the car to figure out what's wrong with it. At that point, I just felt like I had to be hands off or I needed to hire myself some 15 year old smart hacker to to tell me that the carburetor needs to be fixed. Right. And the iPad is really the equivalent when it comes to computers. You go from a PC where you can actually pop it open and potentially increase the memory to an iPad where it's just like, hey, it is what it is. If it's broke, you make that genius bar appointment and good luck, soldier. And that also you you made a, a good point, too. When when you are in the world of browsers, there is a way to spy on the code and and really kind of see there's all these tools in in Firefox in particular, my my favorite that. You can see code, you can see CSS, you can see exactly how this creature was built. But in the iPad, I, I can't readily open any app and, and see their code. That's the under the hood view of that web app. So we come back to our analogy. Yes, these things right now are like the last days of, of car culture, where all this stuff is still sort of open, but it's disappearing so fast. Does that mean we're going to have, you know... Memorial Day browser shows like we have the old car shows. People come up and pull up their old websites and say, I built this one in 1998. You should see this website I built with Angular JS. Do you remember Angular JS? Oh man, she was a beauty. And we'll just sit around in our lawn chairs and exactly <laughs> drink lemonade. Oh my God, I can't wait till yep. I'm old and talk about web browsers. <laughs> You've. I you've... Can... <laughs> I can see where this is going. Oh, it's awesome. So, uh, yeah, it's the end of the browser. I'm sorry, but we shouldn't we shouldn't cry. There's there's all this new stuff coming and it's very exciting. And the web browser just doesn't quite have a place in this new exciting world of the Internet of Things. Well, and as things expand, I think one of the major points to discuss is browsers require intent that it's not a passive action when you're going to a browser. You you know you want to look for something, you know you need some information, you know you need to shop, you, need, you know you need something. And so you open a browser, you make the conscious effort to type. More the world we seem to be moving into is more of this passive, constantly listening, constantly watching internet of things world. Okay, so it's, it's the end of the browser. Like what happens to that monitor on my desk? Is that over? The typical transaction that you you go through when you when you wanted to search for something is you go to your laptop or you go to your computer monitor and and that's where you interact with the browser but if you don't need to have that deliberate action to interact with the browser in that way and everything's app based and more passive and ubiquitous around you how much do you really need to rely on that screen anymore it's a good question whether you need a screen sort of like a monitor is actually really interesting. I mean, you can imagine that more and more of the world is moving to the model that we see with like the iPad or your phone or all-in-one PCs where the screen is just part and parcel of the thing. It's almost like the screen is evolving to no longer be this separate entity that you needed to communicate with 
your desktop computer, which was a, a box within itself. I mean, that's how they used to sell the computers. You had to buy each piece separately. Yeah. And I remember like literally you'd buy these giant Sony CRT monitors and you'd have to get them to your car by putting them in a chair. I mean, it was kind of crazy and they've gotten much better. They've gotten much cheaper and now they're getting so good and so cheap and, and kind of so intrinsic to the experience that they just come as part of it. Yeah. And I actually think that people are pretty comfortable with that. I mean, Apple's been doing a really good job of not, I mean, for a while there, it was, you know, buy the Thunderbolt display, but now it's buy your Mac and the entire thing is embedded in the screen. So the screen is no longer its own independent piece. The screen is the computer. Yeah. The screen is like the thing. Yeah. And it just happens to have a PC behind it. And TVs are the same way. They have more computing power than than PCs made five years ago used to have. Absolutely. And it just comes as part of the thing. And I think we can see that expansion because you still need some way to view information or to view something that your thing wants you to see. But screens, I think, are no longer limited to this external accessory that needs to be tagged onto something. And they're getting a lot more creative with uh, screens, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, there's probably a little bit of room for screens at the very high end. Like if you're a professional photo editor, you know, they have screens that are going to be very expensive. And so I think we'll still see monitors at that level. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the the screens are, man, I have a I have a memory stick with a screen. I have a toothbrush with a screen. How incredible is that? Yeah, I mean, they're very simple today, but you can easily imagine that that tomorrow those will be OLED screens that are touch sensitive. One of the companies that I stumbled upon recently has its company out of France and they have this little bot that projects anywhere and it projects from your phone. It projects movies. I mean, they were showing Skype conversations and this thing ends up becoming your mobile screen and it's smart enough to just walk its way into the room and well, roll its way into the room. And wait, is this the ex Google guy? Um, I'm not sure. Was it a giant white blob like thing? It was a white blob like thing. It it looked looked like that giant white Apple speaker they used to have, you know, the big tall one. Yeah. It was like a robot whose main job is to like display stuff. To be its screen, wherever you want a screen to be. Like screeny. If it was in Pee Wee's Playhouse, you'd call it screeny and you'd say, screeny, come over here. Except now you just do it from your iPhone because they were trying to be very subtle. You don't Uh want to be rude in the conversation and call screeny over. (laughs) So, yeah, I think people are starting to experiment with what they can do with screens, but that's that's definitely not the most interesting one. There was a great video that I saw just recently. Land Rover has what is called an invisible car technology where, you know, not dissimilar to some cameras and cars that give you a 360 degree view around the car, except that they use it to display the results on a heads up display. And they show you what you would see if the front of your car were invisible including the direction of your wheels, which is kind of like doesn't seem interesting at first, but then they like go over some really steep hills and like for military applications or for just kind of off-roading for like fun vehicles that are designed to go off-road it. It looked really fun. No, it sounds really cool. I, I loved watching that video. I thought it was so neat. It reminded me a couple years back, there was a, an invisible cloak that came out of Japan where it was basically a, a raincoat but they had embedded enough small cameras and and reflectors and I guess screen. They had turned the entire coat into a screen yeah. where the cameras were recording what was behind the person and the screens in the front of the raincoat were showing the back. So it was actually like a way to do an invisible cloak. And it, it looked very similar to what they did in Land Rover. I think that's 
interesting because if you take the fact that screens are getting like smaller and more ubiquitous, but also that screens are getting larger. Sure. I mean, you can imagine a world where your entire car is wrapped in a screen. I know they're also working on technologies where the cameras actually are embedded in the screen as well. It seems like a natural progression. So that way you can have a really seamless view. I've done this a few times where I'm uh, trying to video chat somebody, but the mm-hmm. camera's on the wrong screen. And so I just constantly am looking at the wrong. It just doesn't. That is nice. a huge problem. <laughs> huge. Because you're never staring at the place where it looks natural. You're never staring right. at their eyes to, if you want to look correct. Right. If you want to actually connect with somebody in that right. way. Right. Otherwise, sure. you look like you're staring over their shoulder all the time. And then that just looks funny. My God, why hasn't that problem been solved yet? I don't know. It sounds like a very serious first world problem. (laughs) (laughs) It sure is. Oh, my goodness. But yeah, so Land Rover, I think, did some interesting things. And seeing that invisible cloak kind of, I think, has sparked a lot of interest. I mean, we've seen an expansion of what people consider a screen and what they want to use for projection. There's been some really cool 3D projection shows that IBM has put up that look really interesting. Those are, are, I mean, those are inspired. And now we're starting to see artists explore what it means to break out of a solely audio and visual experience for, for art displays, for films, for, for entertainment in general, now that they feel like they won't have to be limited to a four by three or a 16 by nine screen. Yeah, I mean, as screens, so as screens get more ubiquitous and bigger and smaller. Uh, there's so many and other flexible. And flexible. There's so many other interesting ways to communicate with people that are that are pretty recent developments, uh, like you mentioned. And this stuff is all becoming cheap enough that it can be used by artists to really kind of advance the expectation of what can be done if you combine all these, you know, sensory devices. My first reaction is to think what what will become of the cheesy, scary movie. So the evolution was, you know, you're in a movie theater and you're watching the thing come out of the swamp and and attack the teenagers in the car. And then, you know, fast forward to 10 years in the future from now. And is it you are completely embedded in the film and there's no screen and everything's just projected around you in holograms and you've got the smells and you've got the sounds and you've got the atmosphere and imagine your rear window is actually a screen and you're seeing the result of a camera that's on the back of your car. At that point, you could actually continue the movie afterward and show this monster running after your car on the way home. And then you get in an accident and die and someone gets sued. But it all, it all sounds pretty fun until that point though, doesn't it? That that took a very dark turn. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know where that came from. I don't but, know. I guess I've been working with legal too much, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Um, but yeah, and I think turning every part of your car into some sort of a screen. Imagine your side mirrors where you don't have to see that line about things may be closer than they appear. Elon Musk is trying to change the law so we can get rid of the actual mirror on the side of the car. So really? the side of the car is perfectly flat. Nice. And then there's a camera that looks behind you and the camera's. The result of that is on your dashboard, for example. Sure. And then you've got complete, well, and and the car thing is a little interesting, not to get off topic, but uh, turning your entire car into a visual assessment tool, basically to record and then show things to you is one thing. But then 
with all the advanced technology they're doing with the cars now where they sense everything around them and almost to the point where they're starting to think on their own about what stopping you before you get into an accident, warning you that things might be in the wrong area. That's a whole nother level. But, you know, as we talk about screens, though, and the ubiquity of screens, the car will be a huge uh, opportunity for that. And just walls, everything that we see in shows like Iron Man, those things can happen in our lifetimes. I'm still down with the the whole fashion thing. If you stick with the invisible cloak and you can make, you know, really cool clothing that actually is a screen. Mm-hmm. Imagine where you buy a shirt and you wear it and then you find that it clashes or your boss is wearing the same color and you just change it to a different color. Yeah. I mean, the possibilities are... It could and, be and a movie plan. Yeah. You could have visual storytelling on your shirt all day. No longer do you have to be stuck with a boring, just brown shirt all day. It'll change throughout the day. Talk about first world problems. <laughs> but military applications too. I mean, my goodness, that's where they'll oh, the be. Oh, the military. Well, hey, the military has brought us some amazing research. They have. And and I'm actually pretty impressed with where they go. They actually get to play with that stuff before we do. So theirs would be where the camouflage the entire suit you're wearing yeah. uh, is a screen and it, it actually reflects what's around you. That would be an amazing amount of, then you'd just be a floating head as you go through. Yeah. So we, so we have kind of the screens external to our body, but then we also have the screens that only we can see. Even if people are immediately around us, we have things like Google glass. Sure. And the Google contact lenses that they've been uh, slowly talking about. Yes. Sensors only for now, but it seems inevitable that that will be my heads-up display within 20 years. When rumors started circulating about the Google contact lenses, I think everyone's first impression was that Google had taken Google Glass and turned it into a contact lens, which uh, would have been a very impressive leap in technology, even for Google. But yes, you're right. The the first initial concept between the contact lens is more of a sensor for um, health tech and medical tech. and, And it's pretty impressive, the fact that they could get any sort of capabilities into a space that small that you can still see through yeah. is very impressive. That's awesome. So, so far we've decided that it is the end of the browsers, but it is not the end of screens, but it is the beginning of the end of displays as discrete components. And instead they will just be everywhere. They will be part of devices. They will be part of your environment. Uh, they will be part of your car. It'll just be assumed that, Things have screens. If they need to have screens, if you need to interact with them or consume information that way, that a screen no longer is its own component on its own. We've decided that the user experience is going to change radically if we know that browsers aren't going to be in the picture. And obviously apps are going to be in the picture and there will be still a role for apps, of course, and a huge role as they become sort of the universal remote control for these kinds of devices. But there's also some other interesting ways of doing human-computer interaction that we haven't talked about. Sure, absolutely. Have you seen the Amazon Dash? I think it is a shopper's dream. (laughs) So uh, for folks who haven't seen this yet, it is uh, sort of a harbinger, I think, of what the Internet of Things means and how they can start to uh, displace browsers as a way that you need to use to get things done. You buy this Amazon Dash or, or probably get it for free, And folks who are in an area served by this Amazon Fresh service, which delivers groceries, can use this tiny little magic wand. You can scan food. You can say the food. 
your whole family just says, oh, I need this or, or says more diet soda. And it will remember what you need so that presumably you can just go to an app later or probably to the web and approve the list of items and, and just have it sent to you. My guess is that this is really the next evolution in that one-click shopping that you already have on Amazon. So Amazon's been slowly converting us into faster and faster buyers where you're, you're meant to think less about your purchase. The, the faster you can get from, yes, I want it to, yes, it's already ordered and on its way, the less likelihood you have of changing your mind. So Amazon's just trying to get you faster and faster that decision. They started it with the one-click shopping which was a downfall for, for many, many people trying to control their shopping habits. And now it's a literally in the moment that you're frustrated that you need more pears or you need more soda or anything else that you need around the house that you'll now just be able to tell Amazon instantly, I need this. And Amazon will process your order and ship it to you. And it's and especially with their impressive deals with the uh, U.S. Post Office, you'll have it next day. This is an example of an Internet of Things device that's being applied to an existing business to improve its efficiency, to reduce its friction. And as part of that, they're sort of uh, minimizing the, the need for the browser. And if you take the Amazon Fire TV, I just bought one. It's pretty nice. But the remote looks a little bit similar to this. There's the microphone button at the top. And you say Gilligan's Island. And in two seconds, you can have every episode ever of Gilligan's Island. Before, I used to have to go to the website. I used to have to buy it there and then go back to my Roku box or whatever. But in the same way that this sort of disintermediates the web browser, the Amazon Fire remote does the same for media. And so I think you can really extrapolate what Amazon is doing to how the rest of the world is going to evolve. Yeah, I think Amazon's really trying to embrace this this concept of you need to have the right things around you that are smart enough to give you what exactly what you need when you need it. And that there's going to be an expectation that when you talk to something or when you interact with something that it will, in a simple and straightforward way, give you exactly what you've asked for. Uh, there's no need to deliberately go to a browser anymore. And I think that the way that both the Amazon Dash and the Fire TV make voice front and center is really interesting. Absolutely. You know, voice is, is getting pretty popular when there was this whole battle between Xbox One and PS4, uh, and they were both uh, <laughs> touting videos. And I think that battle is still happening, by the way. Well, before they were released, oh. I thought it was pretty interesting that one of the major contention points was the connect and whether or not people would be comfortable with it just listening to you constantly. So one of the videos they showed before it actually came out was that you'd walk into a room and you'd just say Xbox on, you'd say what show you wanted to watch or what game you wanted to play, and it would just pull it all up. If you took it to the next step, people started realizing that means your Xbox was listening to you all the time, yes. waiting for that command. <laughs> And what does that really mean when you have an entire world where all your things around you are constantly watching you and listening to you, waiting for that voice cue? There's an issue that was just discovered with Google Now, I believe, where the Chrome browser is always listening, of course, 
because it is at your service. But the problem is that any website you use can also get effectively a transcription of your last 15 seconds of speech. Of what you've been saying. Of what you've been saying without your knowledge. So there definitely is a security aspect to that. But yeah, that seems to be sort of the model for how this stuff is going to work. I think it's funny because part of the Internet of Things is this passive ubiquitous lifestyle where where you expect, of course, my TV is going to always be listening to me and will respond instantly when I ask it something. And you can definitely see that Google, Apple, Samsung, Sony, Microsoft, they're all trying to move into that world where everything they make that you buy around you not only talks to each other, you know, the communicate part of our Mm -hmm. Internet of Things definition, but constantly listens to understand what you want from it and at what point. Not to yell fire in a crowded theater, but I I think I'm going to be teaching my kids, okay, kids, don't yell, okay, Google, delete all contacts, confirm in a crowded theater. Yes, that that would be pretty dangerous. And then you could hear the scream of like 300 people as their contacts disappear. Google recently has been uh, putting out quite a bit of press that they want uh, voice recognition and really good speech recognition in everything they do. Everything that has any sort of a Google OS and an Android. Well, one just quick asterisk on that. Yes. In those cases, and in the case of the Fire TV and the Amazon Dash, as you mentioned before, that processing is actually not happening on those devices. So thanks to the cloud, those devices can effectively have speech recognition, even though they don't do it locally. And because of that, you don't need to upgrade your device. Your device will constantly be connecting to a cloud where every time it gets better, the cloud brings down that information. Yes, brilliant. So you're, now you're, you're all set, right? You, you don't need to worry about upgrading the physical thing that you've bought, which is nice, right? So you could have a washing machine that connects to the Google Cloud. And as Google updates its software and gets smarter, your washing machine gets smarter and you don't have to replace your washing machine. And things like Siri can get smarter. So Apple recently bought Novaris, which is apparently a very talented group of speech researchers. So hopefully there's room for Siri to get smarter yet. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. I think it shows a, a real commitment to trying to understand the intricacies of people's voices and what they're trying to say and what we're actually looking for when we're speaking. Even now, you know, Google search isn't perfect. It still doesn't always understand what exactly you're looking for when you're searching for certain things. It can give you suggestions and it makes some basic assumptions. How much more complicated does that get when it needs to interpret not only the words coming out of your mouth, but your tone, your emotion, your your voice, and interpret what exactly that actually you're looking for right. a thing to do when it reacts to you. And I think taking advanced steps with that now and understanding that will be pretty impressive. I know uh, when BlackBerry was mid discussion Mm -hmm. a couple, uh, about a year ago, I guess, a lot of the value that they had was in their patents. And one patent they had, I found particularly interesting where they had a voice recognition software that could interpret the tone of your voice. And then it would either make certain words in your text message that you were speaking to larger, bold in color to express the emotion you were feeling. And they'd actually had some really good patents. So a lot of the value in BlackBerry is in their patents. And 
that one was particularly interesting. It is wondrous to think about what can happen when you combine all these sensory inputs. So did you know that the Connect can read your heartbeat? Yes. Uh, well, there there was an app as well that was doing pretty well. For where, the iPhone, yeah. Yeah, where uh, Cardio, I think yes. it was. And I, I remember in interviews with the guy that invented that, he was talking about changing it into your bathroom mirror so that your bathroom mirror essentially becomes your next screen. It checks your heart rate. It can visualize everything about you. And then up in the corner of your bathroom mirror, when you wake up in the morning, it'll give you your health stats. So you instantly know how you're doing. That's uh, so cool that it can do that. And the Connect takes it one step further, though, and actually integrates what it infers as your excitement level into various aspects of games. So your game can actually change the pace of music and stuff when it knows that you're excited. So the cardio stuff is great from a health perspective, but when you combine that with things like you're playing a game or if you're driving, let's say you're driving and you get like crazy excited, your, your car may actually recommend that you pull over. The kinds of things that are enabled by this combination of sensory input, voice, being able to detect your heart rate through the micro fluctuations in the color of your skin, what happens when you combine all these things and turn that into intent? That takes it to a whole new interesting level, right? I mean... I love that I started with the the health tech and you took it to Gamer Geek, but that sure. works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with but the car example is really interesting to me because I feel that by nature, quite a few of us have a desire to have control and to have free will. Look, everyone knows you have control issues <laughs> and free freedom. Yes, I have. No, I, I have the. Um, the brave heart freedom yelling in the back of my mind constantly. For sure. And so if I was really pissed off and driving my car, acknowledging that, yes, that's a dangerous situation. And I would be responsible and I would pull <laughs> over, but I would pull over of my own volition. If my car then pulled over for me, yes, I can't imagine that a lot of people would be comfortable with that loss of free will. But maybe as new generations get more comfortable where your internet of things is slowly influencing and taking over your life and you're used to things controlling your responses mm -hmm. or responding to all aspects of you. Maybe mm -hmm. they'll, they'll be perfectly fine with their car telling them that they are no longer allowed to drive because they are too emotional. It's a very important question that people will have to answer because once you can control the car, from software. And once you can detect all of these things and probably interpret those as either emergencies or distress, do you make that decision to, as a, as a car maker, like do anything with that? Like just because we can do it doesn't mean you should. It's a great question. Yeah. I feel like we're, we're going to get to the end of the uh, highway patrol. What do you need them for? Your car will know if you're drunk, if you're speeding, if you're reckless and just stop you. That being said, the fact that my car will give me a whole new level of driving experience through the Land Rover display and through the internet being entrenched in the vehicle itself and being able to answer any question I have when I have it. And, you know, I, I can imagine a road trip five years from now must be a phenomenally different experience than it was 40, 50 years ago. I mean, you're, you're driving cross country, you can see everything on the road, your car is instantly telling you about the 
world's largest ball of twine that's 20 miles up on the left. It's already made hotel reservations for you on the right. It tells you your favorite fast food place on the left and then reminds you, hey, you probably shouldn't be having fast food because you've been sitting for the last 10 hours. Here's a salad place you can go to instead. I mean, this is where it becomes the ultimate addition to what you're doing. And you didn't need a screen for any of those interactions. Your car did all of that for you. There was no need to interact with well, a we should typical say, we should browser. Say you, yeah, well, you definitely don't need a browser for that. But if we look at the Tesla as an example, your entire front dash may be a screen. Right. That's true. But it wouldn't be an independent screen. Yeah. Like so, we, we so we know that this changes the user experience completely. Whether you're driving, whether you're uh, at home looking for entertainment, and we don't quite know how it changes. And to your point about the driving, some cars may be meant purely for utility, and they may have a user experience oriented toward comfort and automation. And some cars, like the Land Rover, may decide that, you know what, you thought you had a kick-ass off-road experience before? Just wait till you use this stuff. Like they may use that power to enhance the driving experience of it. That's true. I think it's about changing the user experience from a deliberate eye to screen limited interaction because you can basically only touch and look at things for the most part, maybe some audio when you watch some videos to a completely immersive experience where you have the world around you. I think one of the favorite visualizations of what this would be comes in the Iron Man movies where he's got his computer and basically it's just all floating things around him that he interacts with and he talks to and he can move and he he can just completely immersive experience. And you know what I thought of just now? As the audience, we may actually not be seeing a projection. We may be seeing like contact lenses providing him with a heads-up display. That's true. You know, we images may be simulated for the sake of for us, the poor audience, but you can absolutely see those things becoming real things. So just like when Bluetooth first came out and you always had to do a double take when you saw somebody talking to themselves on the street, if if they had a Bluetooth in or or if they were actually crazy and talking to themselves, you would now walk into the room where somebody is quote unquote coding and really they're just jumping around the room and, and moving their arms around and, and just... You can't tell if they're having a, a spastic fit or if they're actually doing something productive. That's true. Oh my gosh, I didn't think of that. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure we'll be seeing people just appear to be crazy people. But at least we'll be a lot more active and we won't be sitting at a desk all day in front of a computer a screen. A great point. Yeah, no, that kind, of, that kind of interface always seemed really inefficient, but you know, there may be actual benefits to that. As we don't want to evolve down to... What is that evolution of man image where you end up back down crunched at your computer? Oh, exactly. Now the next step after that will be there. There is no physical computer. It's, yeah. it's all an interactive world around you. Very interesting. I, I hope that doesn't mean that you then are expected to work constantly because technically you can take your work anywhere. It all floats around you. In France, they just outlawed email and phone calls after 6 p.m. All emails and phone calls? To the boss. Oh, to the boss. So the solution may not be technical. Like, technically, yes. We only can be France worked. would do that. Probably, I love it. Probably. <laughs> probably only France would do that. But, yeah, so, that, so just because we can do all these things technically, it doesn't mean that we necessarily want to be working or even necessarily have our every wish anticipated by computers 24-7. And in fact, 
we're probably going to have to institute lifestyles where we can get away from that stuff. Yeah, that was one of uh, the contention points, wasn't it? Is uh, a couple of the companies are trying to coin the phrase anticipatory computing. They're uh, Google Now and Siri and anything else you interact with will be able to anticipate your needs before you have them. And Amazon's actually been talking about trying to be able to accurately predict what you're going to need before you need it and already have it on your doorstep. So the second you need it, it's already there. You haven't even had to do anything. So that kind of sounds like the realm that you were talking about is whether or not that would be something that we'd be comfortable with, or does that just kind of spoil us all rotten? Or does that cross a line that we actually won't be comfortable with? When you want to get away from it all, but your phone is giving you kind of your location nearest inch if your computer or your tablet is listening to your voice at all times heck maybe you're in your living room and like you have four devices listening to what you're saying at all times it is going to be difficult to get away it is going to be difficult to feel peace and solace if you're aware of all that and i'm not certain that my generation at least will be able to just kind of ignore that stuff yeah, I think it might be I think it might be a generational thing as as each generation gets more comfortable with it. Although that does bring up an interesting thought. If you do have two, four, ten, fifteen devices in any one room listening to you, are they then competing as to who heard you best to what's going on? Because at this point there's still a bit of a battle going on between the major players as to who's going to have the best voice recognition and who's going to be able to interpret your emotions and your needs better than the other players in the field. If they're smart, they will use the fact that they have an array of microphones to provide not only like a better signal that they can all share, but use that to even triangulate you within the room even better based on how long the sound waves get to take to reach you. Uh, If they could cooperatively share sensor data, imagine how much smarter each app could be That would mean Apple, Google, and Samsung would have to share. Well, they sort of do in the sense that browser makers, since we're talking about the end of browsers, have decided that there are standard ways to be able to query for your location, to be able to listen and create audio and and all these advanced APIs. And if there's an API that allows for that kind of sharing and a security model that allows you to decide who's listening and who can share with who and what they can share... Boy, that does sound really hard now that now that I'm talking about it. Doesn't it? Yeah, it's pretty hard. I, I think I think that might give us a bit of a, a couple bumps in the road as we as we move down this path. But I, I do I do have this picture in my mind. Uh, there's all these videos online now of kids that are so used to iPads that you put them in front of like a physical book or magazine and they get frustrated that it it doesn't respond to the same gestures that the iPad does. Does that mean five years from now we're gonna have Tons of videos of little kids screaming their head off at at the couch that won't respond to them because it's not a Google Now device. <laughs> it's possible. I mean, my my kids already walk up to the television and want to touch the thing they want to play. And they're just at that age. They're four. And, and it's like, guys, I'm sorry. You can't just point to what you want on that old 55-inch television. That's amazing. I'm sorry you can't do that yet. I know that you're used to that and expect it. Already, I'm sure what you're describing will happen. Now we're going to have pop culture museums where you get to see an old TV that still has the entire 
tube in the back and and then oh exactly my fancy samsung 55 inch tv will be a relic because it doesn't respond to voice or touch i mean what what was it thinking or doesn't understand my emotions and instantly pulls up you know terms of endearment or an old tom cruise movie (laughs) or maybe an angry angry war movie who knows you watch angry war movies no okay so here's what we've decided. It's the end of web browsers. Web browsers? What What are those things? Exactly. That sounds crazy. But it's not the end of the web. The web is still a vibrant place where all of these things will live. They will just not have HTML and CSS and JavaScript renderers and all that crap, but they will talk to APIs. They will be everywhere. They will be on a plethora of screens, big, small, flexible. They will be in your car. They will be everywhere. So although you won't be using web browsers, you will be using the web. You will be using Internet of Things devices. You will be using apps. And these things will all work together. And you'll use a browser occasionally. And as the Internet of Things continues to grow and become a more expected part of our lives, they will become smarter and they will listen to us constantly and watch us and learn our behavior and respond to that in a unique way. And that's why you won't need the browser. Is because they will anticipate your needs. You won't be entering URLs. It's the end of URLs. Brothers and sisters. So, I feel like I'm starting a religion. You are. Some sort of like, you're, you're proselytizing. Some sort of the end, end of, of... I'm the guy in the park with the sandwich boards that's saying, saying the end of browsers is nigh. That, you know, now we have to have an image of that on our blog, right? Okay. Okay. I'll get to work on that. All right, good. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at Farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form at farstuff.com or email us at podcast at farstuff.com. We love to hear from you. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. And if you would be so kind, we would love it if you would share the existence of this podcast with your friends and family on your social networks of choice. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Anticipatory. Can you say that again? Uh, Did you just have a small stroke? (laughs) I did. Was that just not that funny? Aw, do you need a sympathy laugh? Yeah, kinda. Okay.